and welcome to Monday Night Therapy. It's a special night. Wait, it's with John and Todd. And this week we have with Paul, with Paul Koch, the author of No Place Like Nebraska, uh, Anatomy of an Era, Volume 1 and Volume 2, the guy that wrote 890,000 words into two giant books that could be used as murder weapons. Uh, I have this special lighting just for Paul. And uh, do you feel bad that I didn't ever do it for you, Todd? I'm trying to find you in there, John. You know, you, <laughs> you're kind of hidden. Oh, now now you're moving enough. Yeah. Hey, you know what? The best thing that's happened, John, is that it's warm enough that I could go outside without a winter jacket on down here in kind of like southwest Iowa and eastern Nebraska. Are you still cold up there? Actually, it was like it's 34 right now. So it's Ooh. it's a heat wave. Heat wave. I mean, if it's, it's, you know, you could go outside in just your underwear and be like, yeah, all right, we're rocking out, man. Only in Minnesota Paul? can you go outside in your underwear. Paul, Paul could go outside in his underwear every day. Yeah, he could. No comment. Yeah, Paul, Paul, Paul I didn't introduce you. I, well, I did. I did the short introduction. You live in San Diego. Yes, uh, been out here for the better part of 25 years, I believe. So how is it there? You know what? It is typical San Diego weather, uh, about 73, 74 degrees. Just another crappy day in paradise. Yeah, exactly. Okay. We're, the we're, place I would give anything to be able to live is in San Diego. God, well, you can, you can buy Paul's house for $6 million. No, no, I can't. You know, the funny thing is, Todd, it seems like half of Nebraska lives out here already. I'll bet, you know, I'll bet they did. Well, shoot, the last time I was out there, I was out there for a convention and, uh, you know, right there in the Bay. And I just love it down there by the Gaslight District and whatnot. You know, it was just really, really cool. So I'm out there wandering around and I headed back to, up to my room and I flipped on my computer and checked Facebook. And here I see a picture of a guy posted on Facebook by that statue of the sailor bending the gal over and giving her a Oh, smoke. yeah. Yeah, the Embarcadero. You know that? And I had yeah. just walked past that like 10 minutes earlier. And a friend of mine had taken a picture with him and his wife right at that <laughs> statue. And I thought, he just posted this now. Is he in San Diego? So I pulled out my <laughs> cell phone and I dial him up and I said, John Johnston, are you in San Diego? Well, yeah, I am. I said, well, I am too. So go oh, figure. That's... I don't know what this attraction is. He just can't leave me alone or his wife. That is awesome. <laughs> You've got a stalker. Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, you don't okay. want to hear me talk. Let's talk to Paul, John. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, Paul, you were with you were in Nebraska from 1987 to 1996. You were a member of the strength and conditioning staff of the greatest Husker teams ever in the history of mankind. I how happen often, to be in the right. How, how often do you tell people this on a weekly basis? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, every now and then I will enter a conversation with a stranger and just happen to mention uh, those years. And the first thing people say is, oh, wow, Tom Osborne, you know, uh, or they'll say Tom Osborne, Tommy Frazier, Lawrence Phillips, you know. And uh, and they'll just they'll just harken back to watching the national championship game. I don't know which game, but they'll harken back to watching the game and say, "Wow, those guys were amazing," you know. So, so so tell us what your role actually was. I mean, strength and conditioning. 
the only thing I know about strength and conditioning is, uh, you know, I played high school football. When I became a junior, I started lifting weights. And by the, when I was a senior, I was amazed at how much easier it was to just go out on the field as an offensive guard and beat the hell out of guys mm. that were 70 pounds heavier than me because they didn't lift weights. That's all I know about it. I mean, we had generally just standard equipment. I, what, what is strength and conditioning? I mean, what did you do? You know, just tell us some of that stuff. Oh, boy. Well, you know, I started in 87. As Actually, I was a walk-on volunteer student assistant uh, strength coach. So I actually worked a year or two without even getting paid. But um, And before that, I even tried walking on, believe it or not. I, uh, I played some eight-man ball in uh, D2, Petersburg, Nebraska, the home of the Petersburg Pirates, uh, now defunct. Um, but uh, I tried walking on, and I found out I was a two-player. A, a two-player. Do you know what a two-player is? No, I've never heard that term. Too small, too slow. <laughs> so uh, so I uh, uh, then got the idea that, uh, hey, you know what? Boyd Epley, he, uh, this guy has some things figured out. And uh, if I aspire to greatness, I might as well just kind of latch on to somebody and, uh, and figure out what it is, what they do, and how they do it, and maybe uh, uh, supplement my college education. And I just, I bothered Boyd Epley for the better part of a month or two. I would write letters. I'd phone in, phone in I'd show up in the offices uh, just unannounced. And he finally gave in and he gave me a job out at the Bob Devaney Sports Center uh, working with Brian Bailey, who is the, the Olympic sports strength coach out there. And uh, so I, I assisted Brian. We were, you know, we were working with basketball teams, uh, the track teams, wrestling, swimming and diving, track and field, gymnastics, golf, uh, even the cheerleaders, you name it. And, uh, and then a year or two later, Boyd called me up and I went over to the West Stadium and uh, started assisting with, uh, with football over there. And then later on, I took on uh, uh, pretty much I was head of the Olympic sports, all the sports that is named, in addition to the Nebraska volleyball team. Um, so I was quite busy and, and then pretty much just part time. I was working with the football team during those, those years. But I spent a lot of time in the weight room, so I got to know a lot of those guys really well. And uh, it was just a great era to be around uh, Nebraska athletics. So, I mean, you worked with all these different sports. Were there, I mean, do you have to come up with different stuff for swimmers versus football players versus volleyball (laughs) players versus, I mean, you had to understand all the mechanics and the sports, right? Yes, yes. You know, well, you know, when you get down to it, strength and conditioning first is about injury prevention. That is just okay. square one, prevent the injuries. But then if you, if you develop enough strength, you develop enough power, when these athletes do get injured, uh, they're just going to recover that much faster because they have the strength base, okay? And, uh, and lastly, you're just talking about performance enhancement. You know, you want uh, you essentially you just want to develop an athlete that does things more powerfully, uh, faster, uh, more efficiently, and if you get enough people on enough teams doing that, uh, you're going to be successful. Uh, but yes, you know, you have different movement patterns. Uh, you have, uh, more importantly, you have different types of conditioning that you need. Um, you know, you're going to condition, uh, you know, uh, an 800 meter swimmer differently than you can uh, condition a 100 meter sprinter uh, or even, you know, an or offensive guard. Right, exactly. You know, I, but, but at its base, you know, you're just trying to get kids as healthy as possible. And uh, strengthen up any weak links that could show themselves uh, 
you know, dangerous or deleterious down the line when they really get into the action. So, I mean, did Boyd come up with this stuff? Did you come up with this stuff? I mean, how, like, the are these standard things the Greeks knew about years ago? Well, you stole all their stuff or what? <laughs> you know, to be honest with you, uh, Boyd, uh, we're talking about like 1968, 1969. Boyd was actually a pole bolter on the track team. And uh, he was recruited out of, uh, I think his family was originally from Omaha, but then they moved to Arizona, but then they recruited him back to Nebraska. So he came on and, uh, and Boyd was, I guess he'd been a weightlifter from the get go when it wasn't cool to lift weights, you know, when it wasn't in vogue, when, when people didn't realize there was actually performance aspects. You know, I, I think at that time, weight training was looked at something like maybe a circus act would do, you know, like a strong man or something like that. And uh, the story goes, he was uh, over in the old Coliseum in the basement, I think it was, or maybe the Schulte Fieldhouse uh, underneath the old stadium. And they had an old universal rack and a few free weights. And he was messing around and he ran into a few football players who happened to be injured. And he just started, you know, chatting up a storm with them and started lifting. And next thing you know, a few weeks later, then they came back in the field. Of all people, Tom Osborne, assistant Tom Osborne, noticed that these guys were stronger, faster, and better than when they got injured. And so Tom actually went on a, he went on a, a vision quest, per se, and, uh, and he hunted Boyd down. And he said, hey, what, what are you doing with these guys? What's going on here? And Boyd thought he was in trouble at first. And, and Tom said, hey, you know what? I have an idea. Uh, so one could actually say Tom Osborne birthed the godfather of strength and conditioning. And uh, Tom then arranged a meetup between Boyd and Bob Devaney and uh, found the budget dollars and pretty much gave Boyd free reign and say, hey, have at it. Let's, let's build something here. Let's develop something. So and, I'd like uh, a question for you. Yeah. When, when you were there um, and you said you worked with the volleyball program, were you, were you working with coach Pettit or coach cook who was, or both of them or did uh, you... coach Pettit, coach Pettit was the coach at the time. Yes. Okay. So uh, I'm kind of curious, you know, when we hear about strength and conditioning, I think a lot of us, you know, have, you know, at least some kind of a perception that you have like the head person that's in charge and then some assistants that work with the various teams. What kind of contact did you have with head coaches? I mean, how engaged were head coaches in in the program uh, that you were responsible for? You know, it it, uh, it ran the gamut. You know, you had some coaches that were just looking for any edge and to try to get up on the competition and the old, the big eight. We're talking about the big eight days. That's how old yeah. I am. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, you know, some coaches, they just, they were willing to really go out on a, a limb and try some new fangled thing. Um, uh, others were a little hesitant. You know, I remember I worked with the baseball team also, and, uh, usually just at, at the end of, at the beginning of every summer, I used to go to John Sanders, the old baseball coach's office and just beg him to put the guys through the paces of, uh, of some weightlifting. And, and John used to say, ah, oh, what the heck, just have them go run a few miles. They'll be good. You know, and uh, and just a few years later, you know, next thing you know, Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco and the boys are juicing up and they're, they're jacking taters left and right, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, but, yeah, it, it ran the gamut. But for the most part, uh, I, the Nebraska coaches that coached Avani originally and then Bill uh, Bill Byrne uh, had in place, those people all had a really good understanding of uh, just what the strength and conditioning program could do for their kids. And it was often, you know, it would shock you. It actually shocks me how many 
uh, potential recruits I would talk to during the course of the week uh, when coaches would bring the recruit in and I have to explain the strength and conditioning uh, piece uh, of what we offer the student athlete. And then on top of that, then they really jumped on the nutrition portion with Dave Ellis when Dave came on. Right. And uh, trust me, Dave, he is a world-renowned authority. And when Dave speaks, people ought to listen and he really breaks it down for the kids. And uh, it's just, we actually, I think we our, our recruiting really picked up when Dave came on too because he helped bring in a greater caliber of athlete that were really serious about what they were doing. Wow. That, all this stuff just seems so, I don't know, like it always should have been there. You know what I mean? Well, it you know. It just seems like, it just seems like something that is so evident, so, I'm missing the word, obvious. Yeah, you know, it seems that way, John. But you know what? Uh, if you go into my book, Dave Ellis, uh, in his interview, right. Dave, right. trust me, Dave has been a lot of places, been talked to a lot of people, worked with a lot of different organizations. And Dave himself made a great point. He said, you know what? It was just that specific time. Most coaches, they come in. And what are they trying to do? They're just trying to develop a That's culture right. in their program. They're trying to get just a few things straight. They're trying to, a lot of times, they're just trying to get on the same page with their own assistant coaches, you know? Right. And sometimes that's just terminology, much less scheme and strategy. And, and you know, in the heat of the game, uh, you know, getting both brains uh, working on the same wavelength. You know what I mean? And, uh, and it just took uh, just incrementally, year after year, or Coach Osborne to finally get things in place where you can finally start looking at those next pieces that really kind of put things together. And that's when you really see your players shine and maximize their full potential. Have you seen, have you seen what's happened this year? With uh, Matt Rule has 39 people or 40 people on his staff. You know, I read that the other day. I think the number was 40 or 41. Yeah, and and I think that might uh, put us uh, like the top one or two of the Big Twelve, Big uh, what is it? What's it called? The Big Sixteen, BG One. Yeah. Six, I don't know what it. What it's the, the Big, big Ten. Uh, big. I, I yeah, the, the Big. big. I, I expect it to be a Big Sixteen someday. I don't know how it's going to come about, but I think it's going to be the Big Sixteen. Um, <laughs> but yeah, hey, you know what? Again, you know, I uh, I what little I know about Coach Rule, it sounds like he gets it. And with all the kids you've got, with all the athletes you're working with, uh, the more staff members who can help build a culture, who can, uh, you know, sit down and talk with an athlete and make a connection, not just on the field, but off the field, uh, the more people you have doing that and, and uh, what's the word, maybe promulgating your, uh, your culture you're trying to build, the better, man, you know, um, the, the more support staff, the better. I'm all for it. You got anything, Todd? Well, you know, the one, uh, yeah, I want to hear him talk about his book, but I, one other question that uh, I, I did have is, you know, for quite a few years now and with different coaches, they talk about how important the strength and conditioning staff is in establishing the culture. I mean, you know, because mm. of the contact that you have with the student athletes. And I guess a question I kind of have is, um, you know, I understand if we're just talking football, I understand that from, you know, the winter conditioning perspective, because you you guys are the ones that are there with them day after day after day, motivating, pushing and that type of thing. Um, and I guess I guess, you know, I, I'm assuming you agree that you that you help promulgate the, the culture. But talk to us about 
how that works? How does that happen? What what are those relationships like when you work with student athletes in that kind of a setting? Boy, well, you know, um, I think it was John uh, in your video a week or two ago. You alluded to a Trail Alberts interview where he said, uh, Coach uh, Coach Osborne in Coach Osborne in his wisdom, he put together a staff, a very I right. think the word disparate mean uh, is the word, uh, yeah. just of differing personalities. You know, right. Um, um, and I think when it comes to like a strength staff, you got the same thing. Okay. Uh, I look at it this way. When you have a kid come into a weight room, they're a college kid. Number one, what would they rather be doing? Most of the time, it's just about anything, but being inside a weight room. Okay. Yeah. Um, so to me, to me, uh, th and again, this is, this is me from my perspective. Okay. Somebody might look at me, uh, another strength coach and say, this guy's a kook. Okay. Uh, but another might say, Hey, you know what? This guy gets it. And from my perspective, when a kid came, in, came into a weight room, you wanted to just remind them of three things or just focus on three things. Number one, uh, lifting weights is work. And your job is try to make work fun. And uh, sometimes you have to get creative. And, uh, but just, hey, in, in some way, shape, or form, make the work fun. You know? uh, number two, um, you do want to, to motivate them to get the most out of the time they're there. Because number one, it's hard enough to get them in the weight room. Number two, when they're there, you really got to make it pay, you know, make it worth their time. And we always, we always actually had a, like a time clock. We didn't want our athletes spending more than 45 minutes in the weight room. Uh, we felt that if you gave them 45 minutes and in a workmanlike manner, in a disciplined manner, if they follow the program we set forth for them, they could do their entire workout in 45 minutes. And then they could go on to their day and, you know, they could, you know, do homework and, Lord only knows what college kids do, uh, but, uh, uh, but, you know, but here's the deal. The funny thing. And the third thing obviously is to make a, a just a, like I said, an interpersonal, interpersonal connection. And uh, some of these kids, you know what? They just want to know someone understands them, um, that someone cares about them despite how they perform on the field. Okay. Um, and believe it or not, a uh, Brian Bailey, uh, again, my mentor uh, in his interview, he makes the great point of so many of these athletes, they're, um, you know, they're very afraid of failure and they're very fearful of making a fool out of themselves uh, on the playing field in public. And uh, it's, it's really just from that aspect, it's a high pressure situation. And you just want to, you just want to be an encourager and be an ear. And sometimes they'll vent to you, you know, problems they're having with their girlfriend or problems with a coach or, or whatever, you know, I, but to me, the key was you just always had to let them know, hey, I'm here for you no matter what you need. And, and that's that's just you have, you have to start from there. Everything else, you just kind of again, you kind of depend on the program and you do the work. And uh, but speaking earlier, you guys asked about where the weight program came from. You know, I think most of the credit uh, goes to uh, Mike Arthur. Uh, if you're familiar with the name Mike Arthur, Mike, Mike was a long term assistant. Uh, to Boyd Epley. Um, you have Randy Goble uh, in the background also. Uh, Randy, uh, Randy actually had, uh, uh, we use, he was a handy guy. Randy could build us about anything, okay? So here you had Mike. This guy was delving into uh, uh, lifting um, routines and uh, stuff from like Eastern Bloc nations um, from like the 70s, you know? And he's delving into like arcane journals and textbooks and and grabbing all this stuff out and 
And believe it or not, hey, Nebraska football itself took a while to get on the straight and narrow, get on the path to really knew what it took to condition a football player. And uh, about the early 90s, I think they really kind of stepped it up a notch. And we really started training the, the movement systems, um, the energy systems properly. Um, instead of just doing a circuit type of thing during winter conditioning and the guys got really aerobically fit, uh, we found out that, hey, what, you know what? Football is not an aerobic activity. You know, it's usually short bursts of speed, right. anywhere from one to three or four seconds. And next thing you know, they're standing around for a minute. And, uh, you know, the old, what do they call it? The Krebs cycle, right? Yeah. You yeah. got adenosine triphosphate here and you got oxygen there throwing off acid here and the whole thing's going around. And uh, you just have to, uh, by the time football season comes around, you have to make sure you have enough strength and as much power as possible and then condition it so that these kids can just go full force all day, every day. And, and that's what our guys did. Uh, our guys, actually, they did put in more work than we asked them to. Uh, we had many guys, they'd sneak off to Gold's Gym that night. They'd sneak right. over to the Student Rec Center. They would, uh, they'd actually, uh, Brendan Stye was famous. We always had to turn the lights out on him and turn the stereo off and say, get out of here, go to the training table. Training table's going to close. And he'd be screaming, I've got two more sets left or something like that. But, uh, but yeah, these, hey, these guys put in the work. And, uh, and the championships that they came home with uh, was proof that it paid off. Okay. We're going we're gonna to pause and uh, go to chat. Linda Wilkins is one of our regulars, and Linda Wilkins has a, a daughter. And what, what's, wait a minute. It was the son's girlfriend, wasn't it, Todd? Uh, sorry, Linda. I drank your beer, Linda, but I forgot the relationship here. <laughs> okay. She has, I, I thought it was her daughter or something. Anyway, they're running a, they're running a seven marathons in seven days or seven half marathons in seven days uh, on every continent. Wow. And, and Linda gives us an update and she says, John, Todd, quit update. Six down, one to go, still on the way from Brazil to Miami. There was a big issue going out of South Africa 12 hours late. This will be the second marathon Jeez. today. Oh have you ever gosh. heard of this? Have you ever heard of this, Paul? That is madness. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I yeah. said. That's what I said. <laughs> hey, all I can say is get your rest and eat your get your protein, man. Your body is eating it. You run that many marathons that soon, your body is eating its own muscle. Oh, man. Okay. We're going to ask. Some of these are going to come up, and they're gonna, we're going to show. Uh, let's see. Fred Sacco was creatine that big a deal for the 90s team. It felt like we always heard about it. I tried it, and it didn't seem to do much. Now you're going to be giving out nutrition device, so you have to disclaim. You know, I am not. Uh, I am not a medical authority. <laughs> well, well, you did it already. So thank you much for that, John. Uh, you know, I do recall when uh, when Dave Ellis came on, he did introduce the team to. I believe its uh, its official name was Creatine Monohydrate, and uh, we did it with just a we with just a select few players at first because we wanted to see uh, uh, how their bodies dealt with it. And uh, one of the keys to the creatine was, uh, number one, you didn't want to take too much, okay? Uh, you wanted to chase it down with a lot of fluids, uh, because uh, I think if you do do creatine monohydrate and you don't, uh, it uh, sets yourself up for some cramping. And the last thing you want to do is inhibit performance yeah. rather than help performance. Um, but, but yes, we did use some creatine monohydrate. And, and, you know, a lot of people, I think, they put a little too much uh, – uh, I don't know, focus on it. Um, 
my perspective, the way I looked at creatine monohydrate, it was like having an extra eight ounce steak uh, at the end of your meal. It just kind of bumped you up that little bit of extra protein and such that at the end of your workout, you might get maybe an extra one or two sets out of it when you're pushing to failure. And, you know, obviously that those last two sets are actually where all the, uh, the, uh, the improvements come about from, right? Uh, so if you've got right. someone that's willing to push a little extra bit and use that creatine, hey, all the power to you. I myself tried it, and I'm still a shrimp. <laughs> okay. We, we got Blaine Cole from Japan. Mr. Coke, do you have any thoughts on PEDS, performance-enhancing drugs? Do they have a place in any sports in any form? Keep that in mind. And we're going to go with uh, Joel Tilson saying, is the Big Ten and other conferences testing for PEDS? performance enhancing drugs. Thanks, doc. Uh, I, I, before you answer this, I, I think there's this constant thing that, you know, guys can't just go into put it this way. One of the guys from my high school who was two classes below me came and played football at Nebraska. Mm. And he was a sophomore when I was a senior. He was our scout team quarterback. I mean, honestly, I used to beat the shit out of him. Then I saw him. <laughs> Then I saw him walking toward me at Nebraska after he'd been on the football team for like a semester. And I was like, oh, God, what has happened to that? I mean, he literally looked like he could have torn me in half with his bare hands. He looked like a completely – I mean, he looked like the same guy. He just looked like he could, I don't know, knock down a building, pick up a car and throw it at me. And, you know, there's so many people, I think, that have these, this attitude that – this can't be done by just working out or this can't be done by like what you do with strength and conditioning. And so we look at steroids, we look at I don't, performance enhancing drugs sounds like a big umbrella of, you know, we just throw it in there and I don't know what it is, but it's doing something and they're getting bigger and stronger. So going back to that, Blaine Cole, you know, thoughts on pads. Do they have a place in sports in any form? Go ahead with that one. Wow. Well, you know, um, I come from the school of if you can't do it naturally, don't do it. Um, to me, uh, it's kind of like the old, uh, what do you call it? The old uh, Olympic, uh, uh, the spirit of the Olympics. You know, you show up and whatever the good Lord gave you, you make the most of it. And at the end of the day, as long as you did your best, that's what matters. But it sure would be nice to win. Um, that's, that's the perspective I always took from it. Um, obviously, there are some sports where that's not the case, you know. Uh, I'll be so bold as to go out there and say, uh, you know, Tour de France, the, the bike racing. You talk about right. the peds. Um, that's, that's, that's a whole other animal right there. Uh, but as far as football goes and peds, you know, um, I think, well, from the stories I've heard, the 80s, <laughs> that's, uh, that's where things were really got crazy. But anymore, uh, while I was at Nebraska, you know, we were always testing. Uh, we were always looking out for kids trying new things. And, and most of the time, uh, if someone was trying, uh, you know, like anabolic steroids, things like that, there were usually somebody that was maybe fifth team, uh, sixth team, fourth team, and they wanted to make the jump to maybe the second team, you know? And, uh, and you know, if you suspected something, you usually sit them down and say, hey, that's not the way to go about it. And, uh, but from my perspective, uh, it, really, it really doesn't have a place in football. Um, my concern is always the long-term effects. You know, you're talking right. biology, you're talking biochemistry, and uh, the human anatomy, the human machine is quite a complex uh, machine. Just 
I, I challenge you just for 15 minutes trying to run your liver, okay, much less the rest of your body, and look at all the different uh, things that have to happen automatically in your body. It's, it's impossible. So my perspective is don't screw up with it. You know, just work yourself hard, rest hard, eat right, and uh, train well, and you'll get to where you're going. Okay, we got James Marshall. James Marshall says HGS, HGH, human growth hormone, is the difference maker. It's expensive and will bring about big performance increases. Paul? Well, all I can say is it sure the heck probably ups your home run total. <laughs> right? I'll just, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just, no more comment after that. Oh, wow. Uh, let's see, wait a minute. Somebody did respond. Brian Bauer said uh, in response to my guy that uh, was from my high school, did he want to tear you apart with his own hands, John? Uh, you know what? He was a really nice guy. He was one of the nicer guys that I can remember. Uh, he was a nice human being, certainly nicer than I am, and I'm sure that he he never wanted to tear me apart. With what what year would this been, John? Uh, I graduated in '80, so he would have been '82. He played defensive back. He got on okay. the field. He, he, I, he, I don't think he played tons, but he he performed well. I mean, he, I think he picked off a pass that sealed a game for us one time. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, in, in in his defense, I would say, you know, we've all heard of the freshman fifteen, right? Yeah. All right. Well, you know what? If you get a kid who probably hasn't trained weights before much in high school. Okay, uh, who maybe didn't have the best nutrition uh, uh, available to him, who maybe uh, just didn't didn't slow down, didn't rest as much uh, because you're you're a young kid, you're go go going. Uh, you're a freshman in high school. You're put on a great strength and conditioning program. You're eating real well at the training table. You're you're finally reaching a spurt in your in your growth uh, in the in this you know in the third place and maturing. Hey, you know that freshman fifteen for the right kid can turn into a freshman forty. You know, there's there is truth yeah. to that, and I I gotta I gotta preface this. I'm not talking about my current body mass, uh, <laughs> but but when when I graduated from high school, my last wrestling match I wrestled at 145 pounds, and I went off to college, and they put me on a strength and conditioning program from my first day on campus there, getting ready for the upcoming season, and when I came back at Christmas. And people saw me, they, they just could not believe the difference just in that short amount of time with the, with the amount of muscle that I, that I put on my body. And I, I never saw 145 pounds after that either. You know, I wrestled <laughs> at, 100 and, at 158 pounds. You know, that was my weight when I was in college. And, and so it, it did make a difference. And that was all natural. You know, I mean, I wasn't, uh, you know, dabbling. So <laughs> he, he was doing bicep curls with 145 pounds the last time he saw that, right? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, that that the freshman fifteen was there. It's not the uh, 50-50 that fifty <laughs> that I've gone through the last few years. So. Okay, we're halfway through, Paul. I'm going to show a photo, and I'm going to ask you to talk about this. Okay. Okay. All right. This is a photo in the caption. This is a photo of Dick Vermeil and Lawrence Philman, Phillips, and the the caption says Paul. Thank you for all you did to get Lawrence this far, Coach Vermeil. 
Uh, you want to talk about your relationship with Lawrence Phillips? And oh man, well, uh, well, first off, you know what? It's kind of funny. I remember as a, I must have been what was that? Maybe the 1981 Super Bowl that uh, Ron Jaworski and the Eagles. Uh, I'm trying to think who they played. Did they play the Rams? Who was that? Um, anyway, I remember as a kid being an Eagles fan, and I remember Dick Vermeil, and I just right. thought he was the, I thought he was the bee's knees, you know. And uh, years later, he gets back in the NFL. And uh, anyway, a few years ago, uh, after Lawrence had passed, um, Lars Anderson, uh, Lincoln-based uh, uh, writer, uh, I believe he's now uh, teaching uh, at the University of Alabama. Uh, but uh, Lars at one time wrote a great article about Lawrence Phillips. I think that was right before Lawrence's junior year. And uh, um, uh, anyway, they, they put together... Uh, uh, a show for Showtime, and I can't even remember the name of it now. Um, Running for His Life, maybe? Uh, but anyway, uh, in the course of that, uh, there was a photo of uh, Lawrence, and after a Rams game, it looked like Coach Vermeil was giving Lawrence the game ball for a wonderful performance. And just the look on Lawrence's face of, uh, it's almost like a fatherly pride in uh, Dick Vermeil's face, uh, embracing Lawrence there. I just love that picture. So I, I contacted Lars and I asked him, hey, how do I get this picture? I just want this picture for my wall. And he said, hey, no problem. He said, I'll do you one better. You want Dick Vermeil's uh, phone number? And uh, sure enough, I, 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 I think I may have uh, sent him an email. And, uh, and he was kind enough from Vermeil Wineries, from Vermeil Vineyards. He, uh, he sent me an autographed picture of uh, that picture of him and Lawrence. And uh, just a real... Uh, just a prince of a man. And I guess what? He just got into the Hall of Fame a year or two ago, didn't he? I think I believe yeah. he did. Anyway, just yep. a class individual. And, uh, but yeah, Lawrence. Uh, Lawrence, um, what, uh, what kind of, what do you want to know about Lawrence uh, from my perspective? You, you stayed in touch with him when he was in prison. Is that right? Yes, I did. And uh, through a very curious set of circumstances, um, I, uh, 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 I, how do I put it? I found out, I didn't even know he was in San Diego here, uh, at a, at a local, uh, in the local jail awaiting a hearing. And, uh, and here it was, uh, it was Thanksgiving. I was just going through a divorce myself and I thought, you know what, how lonely can he be in a prison cell? Uh, as lonely as I am here just sitting in a, you know, in my place on the couch. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can make his day. So I actually arranged sight unseen a visit to him uh, in jail. And I think it was the day of or day before Thanksgiving and uh, walked in. And obviously we hadn't seen each other for the better part of probably 15 years. And it took him a few seconds to realize who I was, but we sat down and just had a really nice, probably like an hour long conversation. And uh, I myself, I was pretty shocked uh, because uh, I believe most of the time that you only get to spend like 20 minutes. Uh, talking to an inmate and the guard there after a while told me he said hey you know what Lawrence doesn't have a lot of visitors so we really appreciate you being here um, so so they gave me an hour with him and thereafter we just kind of uh, we started a, a, a letter writing campaign just uh, became pen pals and uh, I'd write him a letter one week he'd write me a letter the next week and, uh, and we pretty much uh, we did that uh, religiously uh, until uh, until his unfortunate passing so you know, I, 
Go ahead, Todd. You know, Lawrence Phillips, you know, occupies a, a certain place in Nebraska football history and, you know, kind of uh, most people look at it as a, a tragic story. And I guess, you know, what I would like to say is I honestly, um, when I watched that guy play and I, and I got to see him play live a number of times and I got to see him from different angles and I'm not sure I ever saw a running back that could move horizontally and cut and, wow. and like, like he did. I mean, Nebraska's had Heisman Trophy, Mike Rozier, you know, Roger Craig, Tom Rathman. I mean, you know, wonderful, wonderful running backs. But it's, it's hard for me to think that I ever saw anyone, maybe Barry Sanders, <laughs> that right. was a better running back than, <laughs> than Lawrence Phillips. I mean, he just was amazing. And it's unfortunate Lawrence, all the rest of it caught up with him. So. Lawrence had all the tools. Um uh, Coach George Darlink in the book talks about, and again, George, he'd been with Tom since, what, 1978, something like that, 1976. Um, he said uh, Lawrence, and he brought up Roger Craig, he said the two hardest working running backs we ever had were Roger Craig and Lawrence Phillips. Wow. And, uh, and there are, we've, throughout the book, are a number of players speaking on Lawrence. And I would say 95% of the time when the, when the conversation turned to Lawrence, um, they would be just glowing uh, uh, references of just friendliness, of uh, a work ethic, of uh, uh, character and decency and, uh, and love. I mean, it, 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 it swims against the current of yeah, uh, right. kind of what most people know of or hear of Lawrence. But uh, I, found him, I found him to be just a, a bright, brilliant uh, young man. Um, I mean, you won't believe what he read in, in prison. Um, uh, I, I know, I know when he passed, he was reading Nietzsche. Okay. Oh and, uh, and I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm just, uh, let's just say I'm not a fan of Nietzsche in case he had anything to do with, uh, Lawrence's mindset at that time in life right. and what he was going through. But, uh, but nonetheless, no, Lawrence, uh, great guy. And like I said, we'd share letters, uh, you know, once a week, back and forth. We'd talk about the, the football game was on recently. You know, we're talking about the Pelini era. We're talking about the Riley era. And uh, every now and then he'd get to see a portion of a game or he'd see a game on TV. And, uh, you know, he'd have some comments to say. And, uh, or, you know, he'd see somebody on the sideline and like, oh, my gosh, there's old coach whoever. I can't believe they're still around type of thing. And, uh, but no, it's just uh, – uh, it kind of breaks my heart. It's actually been almost exactly. It's a few. It's a week or two past. I believe six years uh, from his passing, and uh, he was just. Uh, he was a. He was a. He was a good man. Uh, rough early life, and you know what? Uh, uh, you know, some people are able to move past things like that uh, in life, and right. some people they they struggle, and uh, and you know, Lawrence did have a few struggles that I think uh, were a result of some of his childhood, and uh, he did his best you know, to overcome them. But, you know, hey, you, me, anybody, if you go through some stuff, you're going to start, you're going to draw some lines in life that you don't want to cross and uh, you won't let people cross and set some good boundaries. And, uh, and Lawrence had his boundaries. He didn't, uh, he didn't like being disrespected. He didn't like anyone disrespecting his friends. Uh, at the same token, he didn't, uh, he didn't like to participate in Tom foolishness and, and, uh, and, you know, getting into trouble just for trouble's sake. 
Uh, most of the times I think he got into trouble. He was usually defending somebody, uh, believe it or not. You know, so anyway, that's is, uh, I'm this sorry. This is cool. This no, no, honestly, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but this is this is really cool. This is what I what I'd hope I'd hear a little bit. And I, I guess I'm going to be selfish here um, and ask, you know, you obviously have talked to so many uh, players and other people associated with the program. Who's who's another player out there that maybe the public persona was 180 degrees different than what that person was really like? You know, oh, this this boy. is the telltale part. This is yeah. This is, the, this is the memoir. You know, Prince Harry. <laughs> is this going to get me a Netflix special? Yes, this okay. is a Netflix okay. special moment, Paul. Dish the dude, dish the, the bad oh. things or whatever. Hey, I do, I, 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 do have, I, I do have to piggyback. You uh, we were talking about Lawrence. Um, Lars Anderson was talking to Nick Saban, okay? And Nick was standing on the sideline when we went down to Michigan State and just tore them a new one. I think it was the first game in 90, 95, right? And uh, Nick Saban told Lars, he said, you know what? Lawrence ran past me with the ball one time. He said it was the first time I've ever heard the wind when a player ran past me. Wow. Okay. Okay. You think of that, and, and don't tell me yeah, that was a special that. running back. Okay? <laughs> anyway, uh, that being said, you know what? Um, gosh, I'm trying to bring up some dirt on somebody. Oh, um, we don't need dirt. We can flip no, it. I'm just, I'm oh, just no, joking. no, I'm it's just... dirt. Come on, dirt, dirt, dirt. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, you know what? Uh, you, well, the funny thing, again, John alluded to it in his uh, nice little video, his little synopsis of my large book that I put together. Um, uh, darn. Oh, we talked about a meeting in like early 1992, I think it was. Right. And uh, where Boyd Epley went in front of the team right before winter conditioning, and he wanted to separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. And he wrote on the board, jerks, want-to-bees, and have-to-bees. And, uh, and we essentially, we got rid of the jerks. Okay. Because if you have a kid, uh, on the edge of being a have to be player, I have to be here and I want to be sometime it's a jerk that'll drag you down and right. you may and help you make bad decisions off the field, you know, stay at the bar an hour later than you should, you know, or, uh, you know, cut corners. And if you're doing a, if you're doing a drill in winter conditioning and you're racing against your buddy, are you going to cheat? To make him look bad and look slow, or are you going to give it the full effort and do it the right way? Do it the right way right away, right? And uh, uh, but but yeah, we kind of uh, it's kind of about getting rid of the jerks. Uh, you know, well, you just described me in college to everybody else that was around me. <laughs> well, well, I think the conversation by an hour later than you should. <laughs> Two hours, three hours. <laughs> I think they call Let's it addition by this. subtraction. I, you know, I mentally would go, yeah, we're going to go do this because I know that I can at least outrun three of these people when the police come. <laughs> it's like that. It's like the story of a guy and a few buddies out hiking and all of a sudden a bear comes out of the woods. And, and what does the one guy do? He, he kneels down, he starts tying his shoestrings. And his buddy says, what are you thinking, man? You're not going to outrun a bear. And the guy says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. Yeah, see, one of those guys was always Todd. <laughs> okay, I have to ask, did, did anyone, I mean, this book came out uh, 2013, 
Yeah, yes. 2010 years ago. Did anyone regret their interview? Did anyone, you know, want to take anything back? Oh, boy. You know, um, slightly. I would say uh, I did an interview with Phil Ellis, uh, linebacker. And Phil, his memory wasn't quite uh, what he hoped it was. He did misname a name when talking about an event. And uh, in later years, this person who was named contacted me and said, hey, man, um, that is a total misquote. It is not true. I want you to retract it, blah, 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 do whatever. And I actually, I said, you know what? I will do exactly that. So I got a hold of Phil and Phil said, hey, man, you know what? I, I probably, he said, he said something like, hey, I'm a, I'm a line, I was a linebacker, man. I got my brain rattled around a little bit. I probably did get a name wrong. So, if, hey, if you have to change it, go ahead and change it. So, uh, so there are actually two editions of the book out. There's one pre-revision and post-revision uh, in that. But, uh, but nonetheless, uh, it, it, it wasn't even, uh, what was it? It was, it was talking about an accusation of something that happened against somebody. It never did happen. But just even the accusation, the player didn't feel right about it. And uh, I get that. Yeah. Oh, there was also another one. Uh, someone misremembered. It might have been, oh, gosh. They were talking about down in the pit. And it was the offensive line going against the defensive line. And, uh, and the story, somebody told the story that Christian Peter had ripped a helmet off of a tight end and was banging the guy over the head with the helmet. And uh, I got an angry email from this player saying, saying, I can't believe you put that in print because it's exactly the opposite way around. He said, I've been telling people for the last 20 years, it was me ripped the helmet off his head and I was banging <laughs> him with a head on it. <laughs> oh, my God. I'd like to see whoever was smashing Christian Peter with that. Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, it, it was warfare. Where did you get the idea to do this? I mean, where, how did this come about in the first place? Oh, boy. You know what? Um, I got the idea. It must have been about 2007, 2008. Um, and, you know, I've been reading a few business books. And one of them I mentioned in my book was Good to Great, written by Jim Collins. Right. He was a Stanford professor. And uh, I read this book, and I put it down. I closed the back, uh, you know, the, the back cover. And I said to myself, I thought to myself, oh, my God, this guy, in many respects, just defined Coach Tom Osborne's Nebraska football of the, of the 90s era. And uh, I, I waited. It just kind of rattled around my brain for a year or so. And I thought to myself, you know what? I don't think anybody is ever going to delve into just how special those teams were uh, and how special all those athletes, how special those kids were and the coaching staff, everybody, just how, uh, how unique that era was. Because to be honest with you, uh, and you guys both know, and I think Charlie McBride used to say that before the season, he'd say, Hey guys, here's the deal. I'm not sure what kind of team we're going to have this year. Okay. Because uh, at the bottom line, it's dependent on you guys. Um, you know, we, right. you can assemble all right. the talent you want, but unless those guys get together and they kind of make a pact and have the motive and the discipline and the camaraderie and looking out for your brother, um, uh, you know, and not make knucklehead moves on and off the field, you know, good things aren't going to happen. And uh, I think even Coach Dan Young or Milt Tanner mentioned that these, this was a very special – Coach Tom Osborne mentioned it. This, is a, this was a very special group of kids 
where you didn't have to do a lot of motivating. They came, they had it, and and it could be a nature nurture thing. Okay, uh, Coach Osborne, I believe, firmly believes it was nature. You didn't have to nurture a motivation in these kids. Uh, th those coaches just did an excellent recruiting job, and they brought in some guys that were achievers, and and they just they put in the work and more and more. You know, um, in the book we talk about a minute sixteen. I'm not sure if you're at all familiar with that refrain. Uh, you know, the old Florida State National Championship game where we were up by like one or two points with a minute 16 left. We thought we had it in the bag, right? Byron Bennett is back pedaling, shooting pistols down the Florida State sideline, you know, saying, you know, how about that, suckers, you know? And uh, he was and saying thing, shit fire. You know that. <laughs> I wanted you to say it. I didn't want to say it, John. Yeah. Um, but no, you know what? I mean, man, you talk about heartbreak. You know, these, these kids wanted to be the very first kids in order to give Coach Tom Osmer his first national championship. And it was ripped, you know, right out of their hands. And, man, that stung. And, uh, and, and even, you know what, I was thinking about that this morning, uh, how that happening, a lot of people in life would probably crumble. And they'd go into a victimhood mentality and, oh, woe is me. And they would just kind of sulk for who knows, maybe the rest of their lives for getting that close and not getting it. But these kids were just a different level and they, they took it to another level or two or three and they used that as the grist to push them to even greater heights and greater performance and greater dedication. And that, that was, it was a special group of guys. You see anybody from those teams walking around town, you know what, shake their hand. And uh, uh, me, I, I myself, I'm inspired by that. Okay, and and I don't know why you guys watch Nebraska football. Okay, we all watch football for different reasons. You know, some a, people just a say mental illness, Paul. <laughs> Hence the therapy, right? Monday night therapy. Yes, That's why we're here. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I watch football, and I don't care what kind of football it is. I watch football to be inspired. Um, I look around every corner for inspiration, and to me, there is no sport on the face of the earth that inspires uh, the, the average Joe to greatness uh, just by witnessing the striving, the thriving, the fight, the perseverance, um, the dedication of the teamwork that it takes to be successful in the game of football. It's just, it's, it's the greatest sport on earth. I tell you, I, okay. I coach my son's. Go ahead. You're really, I was going to say, I coach my son's flag football team. Uh, believe it or not, I've gotten out of coaching for the better part of about 24 years, okay? And all of a sudden, um, he wanted to start playing flag football, so I thought I would be the uh, the geriatric old dad sitting on the sideline in the lounge chair watching some young buck uh, run up and down and teach kids, uh, you know, the fundamentals and have some fun running around the field, only to find that there was no coach assigned to the team. Yeah. So I became the coach. Right. Okay. And, uh, and you know what, it, it, uh, tell you what, it, it brought about, man, I, I, I forgot what it was like, how fun it was to be coaching yeah. kids. And, uh, it's, uh, it's just, there's something about it. Some football is a great game, man. And it's, you know, it's a perfect sport for Nebraskans to watch, you know, because okay. man, I'm going to be unfair to you. And I'm going to ask you this. Okay. When you've watched Nebraska football, uh, it, let's it, in the past ten years, so we're not just bundling under one guy. 
Uh, I mean, what do you see when you look at Nebraska football? What do you see? Oh boy, what do I see? What do I say or what do I see? There's a lot of four-letter words. Uh, no, that's we just usually a joke. reserve those for me. Well, you know what? You know what I saw. Believe it or not, the last ten years, if you want to say ten years, I saw, I saw kind of like what we described earlier. I saw a coach trying to get a culture set up. It doesn't matter what coach. Trying to set a culture, trying to uh, make the players themselves accountable to each other. And I saw them in the process of just doing some really wonderful things sometimes. And you could see this gleams of like, man, we could have something here if they put it all together, you know? But at the same token, you just had looked like every now and then there'd just be a knucklehead where he'd lose his discipline toward the end of the game. And next thing you know, it turned into three or seven points for the other team. And that made all the difference. Um, maybe in a nutshell, I just say, man, we were just so close so often for so long. And it just, and that's where those little things, and that's where those extra 40, 41, all those staffers probably make a difference. You know? Um, so I'm, I'm uh, like I said, it was a frustrating 10 years, but you know what? You really don't enjoy those winning seasons unless you've been through a few of those losing seasons. Am oh I right? Oh, my God, no. No, no. Hey. <laughs> hey, look at Alabama before they hired Saban. Okay. Well, that is true. You know, they, they yeah. did have they did have Pat Dye, if I remember right. Didn't Pat Dye win a championship for him? No, it wasn't Pat Dye. That's Auburn. Oh boy, no. they had Was Gene. Uh, they Gene had. Uh, did they have? Did they have Gene Forrest Greg? I don't know. Uh, they had yeah, Gene well, they Stallings. Had, they had the Shula kid. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Dennis hey, and yeah, and hey, an even better name. Remember poor Oklahoma in the early to mid nineties? Yeah. I'm serious. Hey, you know what? Growing up as a kid where day after Thanksgiving I'd be crying in a pillow because darn you know, Keith Jackson and Billy Sims and JC Watts and uh, uh, Buster Rhymes, they'd always bring out some freshman running back. Some freshman who would like just, I don't know, pull out some magic and just That's break your heart. Scary. And next thing you know, Marcus they went through the what? Uh, the what? Barry Gibbs? Was that his name? Barry Gibbs? Barry Gibbs was the car salesman. Okay. Jerry. Okay. I didn't know if he was a BG Jerry? or if he was a Sooners coach. Um, but anyway, oh, those years, man, Oklahoma, I felt so bad for them because, man, they slipped, you know? Yeah. And it, truth be, I, I didn't like having Colorado as our main foe in the Big Eight. Okay, I like having Oklahoma as our foe. And when Colorado kind of usurped Oklahoma for a little while there, that really, uh, that wasn't any fun. Okay, but that, that's just my perspective, right? So, so what do you think? I, we got a new coach coming in. He's got 83,000 people working for him. Uh, I mean, you're, <laughs> give us your impressions of, of the beginning of the Matt Rule era so we can use them against you at a later time. Oh, oh, use them against me. Well, well that's you how know this what? goes. Okay, okay, I see. It's going to be archived. Um, you know what? Uh, to be honest think with you. Me, think of me as your wife right now. Oh, okay, that's kind of okay. creepy. Don't do that. Well, I'd just, just be saying, yes, dear. Whatever you want, dear. You want that purse, dear? That is your purse. Go after it. It's all yours. Whatever makes you happy. <laughs> you can have whatever purse you want, John. Okay. You got that? 
<laughs> it's a hard uh, time right now. Okay, <laughs> impressions of Matt Rule. You know what? Um, number one, he was a defensive lineman in college, right? I think so. Yeah. He he was a walk on. Yep. Okay, that is that's that's two stars on the lapel already for me. Okay, um, anyone willing to be a walk on? And again, who knows how Penn State treated their walk ons? Okay. True. But uh, but for him to um, run that crucible. And supposedly he was a senior on the team that missed out in the national championship when Nebraska won it, uh, right, in 94, 95. Four. Okay. Um, it looks like he learned his lessons. Okay. And uh, obviously he's a great football coach. <laughs> I, and I meant learn lessons, I mean, by some good coaching uh, mentors okay. over the years. Okay. I thought you meant learn these lessons like – Left that freaking Penn State behind and came into Nebraska, the two national title holders. <laughs> well, that too. Uh, yeah. No, you know, to be honest, to be honest, I'm like, I'm sick of having my heart broken. Okay. And I thought, I fully thought that Scott Frost and his crew would be that they got it. They knew the Nebraska way and they'd be the ones to get us over the hump and back in the right path. So to me, this is like, this is Captain Kirk and the Enterprise taking off to lands unknown. I have no idea where these guys are going, okay? But you know what? They have my full support, and it sounds like their heart's in the right place. It sounds like there's some real go-getters. Um, I love the fact that they're going back into Texas uh, because, man, Texas has some good football players. They have some good kids. And uh, every great team Nebraska's had, uh, from my perspective, has always had some good Texas players on it. Because they bring, they bring something, like recipe. You talked about recipe a week or two ago, John. They add right. something to the mix. You've got Nebraska kids. You've got Texas kids. If you're lucky, you have a few kids from New Jersey. Okay? They bring something special. I don't know what it is. Jersey kids, man. They bring Tough. something special to the mix. And everybody else comes together. And you know what? Big things happen. So, hey, I'm Coach Rule. He has, him and his staff, they have my full support until they don't. <laughs> yeah that's true okay closing remarks todd do you have any closing remarks do i have any closing remarks yeah i'll tell you what I, I i've enjoyed listening and i could do this all night um you know listening to to some of these experiences and stuff because you know uh obviously john you and i were on campus you know uh from 19 basically 1981 for me 1985 to you 1992 <laughs> um and uh so we got to experience you know those early days you know the turner yeah. gill days and the mike rogier and irving friars and those kind of guys but obviously we we were really interested in the program you know after we left and and you know once paul was there and and some of the things he got to experience i you know, that's, that's, I'm jealous. I'm jealous because of the close contact that he's, he was able to have with, with uh, football players and teams and coaches that, you know, I just love cheering for. And so, well, you know, you know, I was blessed beyond measure to be there at that time. Okay. Uh, because just like you said, you know, the, the, the kids there, the coaches there, it was a very unique time in history and uh, not to just, uh, what's the word, uh, push my book. Okay, but I wrote the book uh, as if you're maybe sitting at a bar and you're eavesdropping on someone having a very deep conversation about some of their fondest memories of those times. And uh, 
So a lot of it is, a lot of it is like fly on the wall kind of stuff and uh, kind of pulls back the curtain. And, uh, and you'll hear there are a lot of funny stories in there about uh, just kids being kids. You know what I mean? Because, uh, hey, you know what? They're athletes. They were students um, at the same token and well-performing students, I might add, uh, because of our uh, uh, academic uh, skills and counseling and everything. But, uh, but no, it's, uh, if you have a chance, I would urge anybody, uh, grab a book. I don't care if you buy it used on Amazon, okay? I don't know what fool would actually sell his book used on Amazon. But nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, maybe, maybe he found a different doorstop. I don't know. But in uh, uh, any regard, I would say whether it's volume one or two, grab it. Do some reading. You are going to find just nuggets of hilarity, uh, insight. And, uh, and you know what? You're probably going to walk away very proud to call yourself a Nebraskan. Um, wow. And I wrote the book, so Nebraskans would be proud. Because a lot of people look at it as flyover country. But, you know, it's home to me. And there's some very special people uh, out, come out of there. And there's very, some very special people that still live there. And uh, we need to celebrate who they are and what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. Absolutely. Oh, my God. Are you going to move back and run for governor or anything? <laughs> 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 well, not, it's been wonderful, not a chance. Wonderful, wonderful talking with you, Paul, and listening to you tonight. Thank yeah. you so oh. much. Thanks for, for joining us, Paul. So hey. this is this has been Paul Koch, uh, author of the book Nebraska, uh, No Place Like Nebraska, Anatomy of an Era. Uh, we might have him back. Uh, we'll see how things go because uh, we have so many guests lined up for the years to come. <laughs> Hey, hey, all I want to say, John, you know what? I am proudly sporting, I think, the only John Johnson autographed Coronation T-shirt in that, existence today. That okay? is true. That is true. So that ought to be at least one extra guest uh, yeah. for this episode, don't you think? I think so. I would but, say at least, we, at least one. We will come up with tougher questions. <laughs> Actually, we'll solicit questions from the audience. All right, we're we're past an hour, and Todd and I are old, so typically we end this as an hour. Is there anything else, Todd? Anything else? Oh no, I can't think. I'm just excited for baseball season to get going. I really am. So, you know what? Wednesday night for everybody listening. Wednesday night at 7 p.m. We will be doing a live show with uh, Patrick Ebert of D1 Baseball, and we will be talking about Big Ten baseball. Uh, we're going to do that in place of our regular Five Heart podcast this week. But Patrick Ebert writes for D1 Baseball. He's a national writer. And we're going to go over the Big Ten. Are you going to be there, Todd? Oh, you know, I maybe. Yeah, probably. I, you know, I've got such a busy social life, John. It's just, you know, sometimes kind of hard to fit everything in. Well, you have to be there because I can pronounce your last name. And otherwise... <laughs> You need to learn how to pronounce Aaron's last Aaron's name. Aaron's last name? I just yeah. call him Brutus, John. I just call him <laughs> Brutus. <laughs> okay. All right. That's it for tonight. Thank you for your support. Thanks for showing up. Uh, tell your friends. Like this video so YouTube likes us more. Uh, here's how we end, Paul. Good night, Paul. Good night, Todd. Good night, John. Good night, Paul. <laughs> Good night, you freaks. <laughs> I love how it works. <laughs>